1: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SEAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SEAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on the website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Hello and welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm Faiza Zakaria from Nanyang Technological University and your host for today. It is delightful to have with me today Juno Salazar-Pariñas, the author of Decolonizing Extinction, the work of care in Orangutan rehabilitation published by Duke University Press in 2018. Dr. Pariñas is an assistant professor at the Department of Science and Technology Studies at Cornell University. She works on issues related to human-animal relations, the institution of environmental justice, feminist theory and conservation ethics, all of which will be addressed through this very rich book. Juno, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for hosting me. I really appreciate it. It's really wonderful to have you. And I don't think my brief introduction really did you justice. So let's get
0: further acquainted. Can you tell us a bit more about yourself and your work? My PhD is in anthropology. Before that, I had a bachelor's degree in women's studies from the University of California at Santa Cruz. And I realized that I needed to use my brain. My brain was going to atrophy if I didn't use it. So I felt compelled to do a PhD. And I decided to do a PhD in anthropology because my favorite professor was an anthropologist. And that professor was Anna Singh, who's a very well-known scholar of Southeast Asia. I pursued my PhD in anthropology, and I felt like I had to go to the place most opposite to where I had previously studied. So I went to a very famous hippie school, which is Santa Cruz. The mascot is the banana slug. And I felt like I needed to be at like the most um, uh, stodgy place that I could imagine, and that was Harvard. So in many ways, my academic biography really works through these two tensions between like rigor and creativity. <laughs> the project began really by an accident. What happened was that in the summer before I began my PhD in anthropology, I happened to watch a documentary. And I had written this application for admission to Harvard Anthropology on a project set in the Philippines. And it was going to be a combination of psychological anthropology and feminist anthropology, which is where I was coming from at the time. And I was going to look at self-crucifixion in the Philippines. Like, yeah, in the summer that I was supposed to start my PhD program, I watched this documentary about orangutan rehabilitation. And it was set in a very famous orangutan rehabilitation center in the Indonesian side of Borneo. And it had all these images of Dayak women carrying around these infant orangutans. And I was so curious what they thought about their work with these orangutans. And the documentary I was watching didn't talk to any of these women. It only talked to the Dutch guy running the site and the Danish woman running the operations of the site. So I felt really compelled to figure out ultimately, what do these women working at the site? Think about their jobs and caring for these uh, infant orangutans. So that's what compelled me to totally change my project, that my PhD advisor was Mary Steedley, and she hosted and fostered creativity among us, among her students. So I really appreciate getting that space to figure out what I needed to know to be able to study what I wanted to study. And so what that meant is that I had to take primatology courses And I had to learn Malay. I had to learn science and technology studies. And I I had to learn a whole slew of different uh, scholarly languages and literal languages to figure out how to do this research project. So the book is really a one-person transdisciplinary project in terms of the research method. Yeah, it's ethnography, but it's a multi-species ethnography. So I rely on primatology to help me understand the orangutans' that I was observing. And while primatologists and other animal behaviorists, they are interested in trying to come up with a generalized standard of practices of like what orangutans do. It's like called the ethogram. I wasn't really looking for the general. I was really looking for specifics and unusual circumstances that to me showed what is possible in those very weird circumstances in which humans and orangutans are thrown in together.
1: I think for the benefit of listeners, maybe let me just give a quick overview about this book. Decolonizing Extinction presents a multi-species ethnography, as mentioned, of orangutans and humans that probes their shared susceptibilities of both species in the face of extinction. So the book interweaves um, intimate entanglements in the workings of an orangutan rehabilitation center with reflection on the work of care that draws on cure theory and feminist conception of welfare. And what's fascinating is that the book also demonstrates the colonial origins of such an approach to conservation biology and how care within enclosures, traps, both humans and endangered primates alike. So let's zoom in on one of the core concepts in your book, and that's decolonizing, which is pretty central, I think, in the title. How would you define decolonizing extinction? What forms of decolonization are you engaging with?
0: I was really influenced by the sense of decolonization that's talked about by scholars who work in the Americas. And I was thinking particularly like Eduardo Cohen, you know, when I was working on my book, uh, what he's pointing out is the way we think of who gets to be a subject, who gets to count as being human. Those are the kinds of questions for me of decolonization that really struck me. So it was really about ontology, you know, and about being in that sense of decolonizing the categories with which we understand the world. I actually do have a chapter that talks about the history of the Cold War as it surprisingly became relevant in my work on orangutans, you know, because the displacement of orangutans started during the time of the Cold War when the Cold War was hot in certain spots in Sarawak. You know, by looking and zeroing in, like focusing so much on a human orangutan relationship, it enabled me to talk about so many other issues at stake that happen in Sarawak. Decolonization for me is a conceptual kind. And in terms of decolonizing extinction, I really had to think through this. I feel like so much of our efforts around extinction is about preventing extinction. And I felt that when we Really take into consideration time, you know, like a long durée sense of time, like longer than Rodel's sense of long durée, <laughs> you know. But like, but like the sense of time that's like like planetary senses of, of uh, time spans, like Anthropocene, Holocene, Pleistocene. Um, those moments of planetary time gives us a sense that extinction is part of living, you know, that is part of living on the planet. And I have to admit, I was writing this when I was experiencing a lot of death in my life. Like, I was experiencing a lot of loss. And so I came to write this in this period of grief. I felt like I had to reckon with death really often and that death is, is so much part of life. So decolonizing extinction isn't so much about stopping extinction, but about imagining other kinds of relations when we're in this moment of death.
1: I love the sort of way in which you evoke how extinction is also part of life. And that's sort of embedded in this concept of deep time and how uh, extinct species of the past is sort of embedded in the earth strata. And yeah, I think it's great that one of the key interventions of the book is to See how we can live with this moment, which brings me to a second important concept in your book, which is the work of care. How do you think about care in this light? How does thinking about the work of care shed light on the cultivation of decolonial relationships between non human species?
0: Work of care as a term made a lot of sense with the kinds of care that I was seeing. Because when you say the word care work, it has a very specific meaning and it usually means nursing and childcare. And so there's like a whole set of assumptions around care work. And in this respect, what I was looking at were people who were paid to care for displaced orangutans. And that care didn't always look like our usual notions of care. What I argue in one of my chapters is that the kind of work of having to care for an orangutan is definitely not the cuddly kind of care That is so important for documentaries. That sometimes, in in the case of orangutans, to care is to actually commit acts of violence, you know, to actually like hit an orangutan. And the idea behind it is that you are trying to instill a sense of freedom for these orangutans, that you want to get them to be afraid of human contact. And so, oddly, using violence as a way to liberate them from the forced dependency of having encountered humans it's all very sad it was hard to feel like as an ethnographer i had to be sensitive to all the kinds of relations that i was witnessing and experiencing but then that meant like paying close attention to orangutans and bodies and people's bodies being in situations and i described this in, in my book of observing a training session with infant with like juvenile orangutans they're young they're like you know three years old they're like young they they're like humans of that age where they're like cute they're like toddlers and then one of them kept wanting to come over to me and hold me and then that meant that her caretaker would have to hit her it is really intense <laughs> you know to to be caught in these kinds of relations yeah
1: Let's maybe talk about the first chapter of your book where they try to, in some ways, characterize these um, relationships in this process by talking about models of care that evolve from um, what you term as ape motherhood to tough love. How do you describe that evolution with your observation and what kind of hierarchy of beings emerge from that?
0: Ape motherhood. Was the term that was invented by the person who invented orangutan rehabilitation. And her name is Barbara Harrison. And the reason she even comes to access orangutans is really a fluke. It's that she happens to be married to the director of the Sarawak Museum. She's so well known in Southeast Asian studies because in the 50s, she excavated the oldest human remains found in Southeast Asia at the time, which was in Naya Caves. you know, And she's actually a ceramics, or she was a ceramics expert and had directed the famous Dutch Royal Ceramics Museum. And she has a PhD from Cornell in Asian Studies, or art history, one of those two, having been a ceramics es- expert. So she, she did all sorts of things. But one of the things that she also did was start the idea of orangutan rehabilitation. She did this in the 1950s, and this is a really weird moment in the history of science because it's, you know, in the moment of the, the rise of the lab is the site of where knowledge happens. Uh, but she does, like, field research, and then she also runs in her house this experiment of raising infant orangutans. And so her house becomes a laboratory and she calls this ape motherhood and ape motherhood for her is so not cuddling. It's, it's a practice of science. That's about observing orangutans. And from these observations of orangutans in the wild, she realized that she has to kind of push the orangutan to forage in the forest and live in the trees and stuff like that. So it's interesting because this idea of ape motherhood is not a cuddly kind of motherhood. And yet when you talk to people now they re- who are rehabilitating orangutans, they reject the idea of motherhood and instead embrace this idea of tough love. And so it's interesting because it switches from this feminine sense of mothering and that feminine mothering was never about nurturing. It was about a kind of rejection, actually, (laughs) you know, an instilling of independence for eventual rejection. And it gets replaced with this idea of tough love. But there's an interesting colonial dynamic to her ape motherhood, which is that she has this aspiration for how the orangutan ought to be. She um, wants to impose that without actually being present and without being the one to actually guide the orangutan into her sense of what independence is so it really echoes this moment of the 1950s in Sarawak and in this moment of crisis actually as Indonesia on the in um, the southern border is really actively imagining and rethinking what independence would be and this is at the moment of third world liberation in the 19 in 1955 in the Bandung conference yeah it's really, a theory of decolonization at stake for her. And the important thing to remember is that decolonization is an aspiration for different kinds of players and different kinds of actors, you know, <laughs> like the colonial power also wants a certain kind of decolonization. And that's what ape motherhood was. I was really drawn
1: to the little detail that you mentioned about her as a ceramics expert, kind of like Able to move across disciplines and suddenly become some kind of conservationist. I mean, that speaks of certain mobility that not many people have, right? And definitely not the orangutan that she was looking after did. And one of the sort of more fascinating encounters for me is how this encounter within the mobile and the enclosed um, becomes really part of the texture of life in the center. Get into tell us more about that in some ways and how you experienced the life and in enclosures during the field work. Could you share with us maybe some of your observations on how the interactions were underpinned by both, I think, affection as well as violence?
0: Yeah, Yeah. gosh, it's like I did not include any photographs of the enclosures in my book because I felt it was way too depressing. Puddles inside concrete with bars rusted over and then the smell of feces and urine mixed together with cleaning products. Now the thing is, okay, that is one of the sense of enclosures. That's the enclosure where the actual rehabilitation happens. But then there's this other site uh, which looks aesthetically pleasing, and it's a site that you can visit and see orangutans in the wild, even though it's not really wild, <laughs> because it's like six point five square kilometers of forest. That's contained within an urban, an increasingly growing urban city. There's housing developments on one side, a police training camp on another side, and like a sand pit on one other side, and a concrete, like a cement manufacturing plant on another side. It looks wild, but it totally isn't. It's an island. It's not even an island, it's like an open air prison. And so the interesting thing, though, is that within this open air prison—and I don't use that word at all in my book—you <laughs> know, it's more like me talking candidly with you—but um, yeah, within the site, what happens is that okay, these orangutans look free, and in many ways they are free, but that freedom is difficult for the social relations at the site. Okay, so what I mean is, because these orangutans are free, that means that copulation happens frequently and people cannot control copulation that happens with prepubescent female orangutans. So it's like not even going to be like successful reproduction because this orangutan is way too young and acts of copulation can happen between siblings. And so that's like making the gene pool really small. So there is a freedom at the site, but it's an arrested freedom. So they experience autonomy, but it's arrested, hence the term arrested autonomy. To sort of, in
1: a way, go off on a tangent that is somewhat related. This really does sound like a very dismal place. I was wondering, do you see more cheerful orangutan or maybe even a rehabilitation centers for other species that you consider as potentially a site of study, but ultimately
0: decided to reject? I did a brief comparative project at an elephant sanctuary and I wrote an article about it for the journal Positions. What was interesting to me for that article was um, the idea of commercial volunteerism where you pay thousands of dollars to do manual labor. And what I argue in it is similar to what I argue also in part of the book. This paying to do manual labor is about paying for intimacy and that intimacy is like not pleasant intimacy in this is intimacy in the sense of like feces <laughs> you know that you really know the animal by handling their feces i think with the elephant sanctuary granted i only spent a week there i i think it's has a lot to do with the species i think human elephant relations and you know, just have a different kind of history than human orangutan relations. And that in these sites, there's other possibilities than containment, you know, that the containment is not as, as severe as when you're handling an orangutan.
1: What I really love about your ethnography, I think, in the sort of your larger body of work, uh, are the parallels that you draw between the experiences of humans in orangutan. And especially, I think, the kind of bonding that happens over pretty unpleasant circumstances or even unpleasant moments. So I'm... I want to sort of probe this sharedness of that moment and ask you in some sense, what do you feel that your human interlocutors uh, felt about these interactions? How did they reconcile maybe the tensions and contradictions in their work and their aspirations? And I'm struck, I think, by one example in your book where you talk about a local worker at the rehabilitation centre who wanted to leave his job and open a smallholder palm oil plantation which is not going to be help-friendly for orangutans that he was working for. Yeah, so yeah. how do we you know, get this sense
0: of shadness, and what are the tensions within it? I have like two thoughts about that. The first is with the man I called La Young. He was very complicated, as many people are, where he often had an anti-elitist critique. I was just looking at my field notes about this. We were spending time to, with each other. He had just watched the movie 2012, which <laughs> is like a really stupid movie. And he hated it so much because he hated the premise of this Noah Ark kind of story where you survive a great flood only because you can pay a, a billion euro ticket to a ship, you know, and he hated that, you know, the idea of like of climate change really means that the poor and destitute have no means for survival. Right. He was very clear in his political critiques and, um, his anti- elitist political critiques that were so much about you know global political economy, but you know the thing is it's like he also knew how it worked, and he told me this like so ironically that all this like conservation efforts that are run by royals is window dressing. It's all like greenwashing, and that the real problems are not addressed when you know like a a, a royal visits a site and like raises awareness that way. So this is like the conservation model. And he felt like that was insufficient. And so he, like in a moment of like anger had said, you know, if I was rich, I would just like open up this palm oil plantation. And he was saying that in the context of feeling like Sarawak was not doing enough for actually protecting wildlife. And he said it like with deep irony and sarcasm. And so it's just, extremely tragic then that when he passed away and a lot of people who knew him he had a lot of friends you know from England and Australia who um, and including myself who like give money to a trust fund for him and so then his widow used it to buy a oil palm plantation you know so it's like performing the irony of what his political critique was but at the same time it's like who am I to criticize what someone does when they are able to understand the context in which we're working, you know, like right now we have these moments of like anti-growth, degrowth, you know, and they're like all centered in Europe, you know, <laughs> but but knowing that capitalism is much about the self-devouring growth of uh, converting forests into plantations, you know, and also knowing that you want to take care of your family, like, like what do you do? And it's it's just like we're in this really tragic moment. Um, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's this conundrum between um, how do we ensure that the people in the developing world are able to make a living and at the same time oh. keep the spaces that's necessary for other species to thrive? And, yeah. Yeah, I also hated 2012, so I have complete sympathy with...
0: My- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's so terrible. It's such a terrible, terrible movie. movie. <laughs> <laughs> so I think at this
1: point, it's good for us to pause briefly for a okay. sponsor message. And when we come back, we're going to discuss the future. No more 2012, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rehabilitation and whether we can move to a more productive uh, conservation ethic. And most importantly, I think, how we can love better. So stay with us. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's S-E-Asia Institute as one word. Welcome back. I'm with Juno Parinias and we are discussing her book, Decolonizing Extinction. And in the first half, we've talked about some of the core concepts in this book and some of the models of care in this orangutan Rehabilitation Centers. So in this half, I think we're going to focus, I think, a bit more on what section of the book, which is about the future. The eventual goal, I think, of rehabilitation centers is commonly understood to be the release of the animal into the wild as a free being. And I'm curious to note that you sort of lost this goal in Malay, actually, in using the Malay term bebas pretty extensively and consistently in its Malay form. So why didn't you
0: use freedom? What does bebas capture that freedom doesn't? So the word freedom encompasses a lot in English. And to me, bebas had a specificity to it. Usually when people think of independence, they translate it as the word merdeka, which is like the liberal nation state sense of independence of Merdeka that is celebrated as the the day of independence for Indonesia and Malaysia um, for their uh, independence from colonization. That's how I remembered the, you know, the the word Merdeka or the word for um, independence. And then when I was actually doing my field research, this word kept popping up, bibas, and I didn't know what that meant. It was in the context of doing the field research uh, that this word presented itself, that it was thrust upon to me. What I love about this term is when you look at the etymology of it, it's likely coming from Johor Baru and is thought of as a pedestrian <laughs> sense of Malay. It's like the trade language of Malay. So this is like everyday people's Malay versus Merdeka, which has a Sanskrit origin. To me, there was something really attractive about that sense of independence that was conveyed by Bebas that is not conveyed by the English sense of independence. And so I, I feel like I've, am using that term to form a political theory because Bebas has such a negative connotation, right, in, in Malay as, like, being wild, but, like, not, like, totally wild, like, uh, lia, like, pesta liar, like, like, wild party, right? But, but it has, like, the sense of acquittal. It has a like experiential sense of freedom instead of, like, an ideological political theory sense of freedom. But even though the... Oh, I shouldn't say it's a, not a political theory. It's... It has a different sense of freedom than the kind that's conveyed by the word merdeka,
1: and I think it's interesting that you're highlighting how being free and being independent, I think, are two different states of being. And that's that's a crucial insight, I think, in this, in this book. I want to sort of come back to what you've mentioned previously in the first um, half of our um, talk, where you talked about arrested autonomy and the quest towards, I think, bebas didn't lead to bebas or didn't lead to freedom, didn't lead to that level of independence, but to the state of arrested autonomy, which if I may sort of define it as uh, the kind of state where the quest for freedom generates its own um, inertia. So can you elaborate on this relationship and the relationship, I think, between
0: arrested autonomy of humans as well as the arrested autonomy of orangutans in Sarawak? Arrested autonomy was the first chapter I wrote of the dissertation. You know, it's chapter five of the book. And the reason it was the first chapter of me writing at all about my field research was because it was so much a conundrum to me. I felt like, okay, the site is all about freedom, but it's not really about freedom. It's like about having these orangutans being autonomous, but it's like semi-autonomy. And then I realized, you know, the state of Sarawak is considered autonomous within the Federation of Malaysia. And then all of my experiences at my field research compelled me to realize that what's happening is that the site fosters arrested autonomy, that these orangutans are arrested within the site, and that the state of arrest is also experienced by the state of Sarawak. And so that's that's the story of arrested autonomy and as I've aged I've come to really experience what arrested autonomy is like so much of our lives are caught in, inside institutions and so when you're in a large institution you're given a specific job and that you can't really change the dynamics of the greater machine you can't change the dynamics that are happening within the institution And so that feeling in which you're free to do your your day-to-day activities as part of your job, but you can't really change the structures, that's arrested autonomy.
1: That recalls, I think, how you describe Layang's view of politics in the previous um, half of our our conversation. And I guess... Building from that, do you see, I think, the sort of political consciousness or the desire for political change, does that emerge within the context of working for um, orangutans
0: in the center? No, it doesn't. You know, when you're asking about uh, Liang earlier, and I said something about like, oh, it's making me think of two things. The other thing I was thinking about was one of my favorite interlocutors during my field research. I, I name him Nadim because he's such a good friend. Like, I really enjoyed talking with him because he was always so thoughtful. For him, you know, he was like totally okay with like the hegemonic political party of (laughs) of Zorowak, you know, despite like it's an intensive development. And I think a lot of it has to do with feeling like, I feel like I've forgotten like why he's able to do this. (laughs) And I think part of it is about like treating it as a job. But then the thing is, it's like, there's something really deep there of him developing such sensitive faculties of care, and that he can share such um, scathing critiques with me of like, you know, like important changes, like electricity at the, at the rehabilitation site that attempt to bury the electrical wires costs so much money that it's just like, put on the books, (laughs) you know, and it's not as like an aspiration. And there's like an aspiration that never happens. And I think to be able to stay sane in the state of arrested autonomy, you have to have some concessions, I think, to, and like a sense of complacency of feeling, feeling like, okay, these are the things that could be changed
1: yeah, that is tragic. and it leaves in a way both humans as well as orangutans in this sort of codependent relationship in some ways without radical political change. Do you yeah. think the conservation movement is uh, developing, I think along a path that may allow for maybe a better
0: conservation ethic to emerge? Okay, on a very positive note, I feel like there is some real hope that I have that we can that we can actually come up with other models than what we have hitherto. Mm-hmm. I have like a very concrete aspiration, but I'm trying to make tenure. (laughs) So so it's been kind of on the table as a thing I eventually want to do, which is like actually form some kind of conversation to actively brainstorm what could an orangutan rehabilitation center look like that does not foster so much violence and forced copulation. I think it really might be a creative design issue of doing things like building corridors, <laughs> you know, like, and when when I'm talking corridors, it's not the way conservationists talk corridors of like large swaths of continuous forest, but I'm talking about like physical barriers, you know, and creating a built environment that could host interactions that are less violent in that enable more female agency because in the sites that there that are taking place now there's zero female agency. There's like zero female choice. You know, for biologists, it's actually one of the important drivers of all reproduction is female choice. And so these sites do not foster female choice. It can be possible to really imagine something else. And it just takes some creativity and work and willingness, like that's the thing, like the willingness to actually be creative, you know, instead of just falling back into how institutions have always been run.
1: Yeah, the willingness to sort of break that mole is, is super important. If I may just sort of go off on a tangent on one of the things that you raised earlier about the lack of agency for female orangutans and to some extent maybe restrict agency for the female workers in the center as well. How successful have the center been in rethinking, I think, especially the gendered impact that they
0: their work had on, yeah. on these two populations? No, it's so interesting because the site when I was there had such a fight that was about gender versus class. You know, and it was about is this job a white collar job that's safe and safe enough for a woman to do who also has children in a family that she cares for in addition to her nine to five job? It was a fight that was played over between like working class men and educated women in this respect that, yeah, I, I saw it both ways. Like I saw that, yeah, it totally does take physical sacrifice of anybody working at the site. And at the same time, it's really deeply unfair that the women have to sacrifice more and they sacrifice more, you know, because of the reasons I just said about like, if women with children and families that they care for are more vulnerable, they're physically vulnerable, then it has like greater consequences beyond her, her own self.
1: I do want to highlight the last line in your book because I think it gives us a sense of hope in, in this uh, sort of bleak situation that... So when you, I think, end off with trying to define the work of decolonizing extinction, um, this is how you ended off. And I love it so much, I'm going to quote it <laughs> um, my, uh, word for word. Uh, it's, uh, so the risk of loving and not having that r- love return, the vulnerability of physically being subject to potential attack, the uncertainty of what could happen... When we relinquish control, that is the caring work of decolonizing extinction. So that was the last line of your book. And I think anyone who has ever fallen in love with any sort of being uh, (laughs) could identify with that. So, But at the same (laughs) time, even I think in the sort of human relationships, we tend to put up self-protective barriers to secure ourselves from hurt. So how do we get past that instinct for self-protection, do you think?
0: Oh, wow, thanks.
1: Yeah, the thing is, I
0: really was thinking about one person as i was writing this and it was this person who i call Cindy who everybody loved her and she was such a good sport around like the worst parts of doing rehabilitative work like she got her hand bitten you know and she nearly became disabled from it like and that she felt like even despite that she felt like this is such a privilege for her you know to be in such close contact with orangutans you know and like it's amazing to me just that willingness of personal sacrifice, you know, because I feel like what I'm posing it against is a colonial attitude towards nature in which you violently control everything else because you are scared. What, I'm embr- what I feel inspired to embrace by thinking of her is to embrace that kind of danger and risk, even though it is scary to live with others that you don't know. It's like a deeply romantic sentiment.
1: I think it's lovely that, I mean, what you're basically highlighting is that if we want to make a difference to the lives of endangered species, we really need to make room for romance in our lives. And that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a lovely thought. Yeah, yeah well, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Um, I guess kind of uh, for our audience who may be interested, I think, in working on multi-species ethnographies, um, as someone who's really experienced in this field, what advice do you have for all of us?
0: I feel like it's really important to read as much beyond the discipline in which you're getting trained. And so it can mean reading social theory when you're not trained as a social theorist, when you're not coming out of the humanities, you know, and if it means like coming out of the humanities, it may mean for you then reading work in the natural sciences about the beings that you're interested in. So yeah, I feel like that kind of openness is extremely important for thinking through multi-species ethnography. And the other two is like really thinking about representation very seriously. Okay, with multi-species ethnography, there's always a politics of representation at stake, because so much writing in the past, for so many centuries, really, it's privileges people over animals, but also some animals get more privileged than people. So what I'm trying to get at is that there's a politics of representation that any multi-species ethnographer has to be very thoughtful about. And even though it feels irrelevant, it feels like race and racialization are really important to think through when handling multi-species ethnography. It's easier for me to say this, like, in the U.S., in the context of both settler colonialism and racism, you know, like, especially anti-Black racism, you know, and so then, like, representations of animals have to confront the representations of race that are often mediated through animals.
1: I think it's an important point that you're highlighting how environmental studies shouldn't be te- detached, I think, from the the, the political aspect of, of life, especially in terms of racial as well as class representation to some extent. Yeah. There is a tendency, I think, that to to have that that kind of um, genre of um, apolitical environmental studies, which I'm personally uncomfortable with. So so I think this is a great
0: reminder. (laughs) I don't think it's really possible to do apolitical environmental studies. Because it seems like every environmental story that we want to say has been shaped in some way or another by things like plantations or markets and so it feels like it would neglect an important part of the story to try to be neutral
1: right and okay so being open to reading across disciplines being sensitive to politics of representation i think these are great tips for us hopefully in the future
0: (laughs) Thanks so much. Thank
1: you. Um, can you tell us about an underread or underrated book in your field that you think should be on people's reading list?
0: Yeah, okay. The book that I feel is like understudied right now, and it might be like overstudied. I don't know. I have no idea if it's understudied or not. Um, everybody should be reading is "Viral Economies: Bird Flu Experiments in Vietnam." Natalie Porter did this ethnography of bird flu and One Health. So right now we get a lot of buzz about One Health, at least I feel like I get a lot of of hearing a lot of buzz around One Health, because it's uh, an initiative, uh, a global initiative to really think of human health and veterinary health together and environmental health together, so to not separate medical and environmental issues. What she shows in her ethnography is that, okay, this is a great ideal. Uh, However, what Natalie Porter finds is that there's this tension between medical care and public health on one side and veterinary medicine on the other, where veterinary medicine is ultimately about profiting from industrialized animals. And so these two interests clash, you know, and they clash in really surprising ways. And yeah, I think her ethnography is really fantastic for showing how this plays out in Vietnam.
1: Just to sort
0: of end off, do you want to tell us a bit about where you're taking your research in the future? Yeah, actually inspired by Natalie's work. I'm thinking of pursuing this project uh, that's related to One Health, and that's called One Welfare. It's like a an initiative that speaks to this concern. When I was writing up my book. Uh, animal retirement became a thing (laughs) that I suddenly read about, like while writing up my book, I read about an orangutan in Argentina named Sandra who got to retire. (laughs) It's a retirement for her meant leaving a zoo and going to a sanctuary. And so this is also coinciding in a moment where around the world, great apes who had been used for research are retiring and so I'm really interested in the emergence of retirement for animals, right? When people's retirement feels precarious. But the project that I'm formulating is about the animals and about caretakers of these animals. So these animals are living way longer than they're expected to. And so what is happening is that there's this need for knowledge around geriatric animal needs. But there isn't that knowledge actually produced because it's such a new thing. So then what you have are everyday kind of caretakers and workers needing to come up and figure out what are the best practices of care when they don't have a whole body of veterinary science to turn to because these animals are living beyond their expected life
1: sort of puts the spotlight on how we treat animals as free labor, but now we have to think about what do we do when our free labor could no longer be useful for us. And that's that's a really important issue. Well thank you. Thank you. I would look forward to reading that. Um, <laughs> it has been such a pleasure to discuss this book with you. I think as as our frequent laughter kind of test to, and it's really great to be able to think through the work of care um, that you've highlighted um, in this sort of uncertain times. Well, thank you so, big so thank much. Thank you to you. Thank you so much. And, and also thank thank you to all listeners. You have been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. We have been discussing decolonizing extinction, the work of care in orangutan rehabilitation. Public published by Duke University Press in 2018. If you have enjoyed this episode, join us for others um, in the future and up on the website. Please stay well, stay safe, and join the universe next time. Bye. Bye.